there is application in this that I need us to see. In 1 Corinthians, it says here, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, it says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Doesn't that truth just really minister to you? Because if we're not careful, we're going to think, okay, great, thanks, Paul, for talking about, you know, cattle, ox, what's the deal? Well, he goes on and he says, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? So I'm going to say that if Paul took a passage from the old from the Mosaic law about oxen treading out the corn and then applying it to itinerant ministers earning their income from the people that they minister to which was the application that he gave from that you know that, that the oxen when they tread out the corn actually eat from the corn so we're going to be looking at four animals over over the over the next four weeks and I want us to glean some insight. So are you there with me in Proverbs chapter 30? We're going to start with verse 24, and we're going to read through verse 28. Four things on earth are what, church? Small, little, whatever your translation says. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. I'm going to be entitling this series, Small, but wise, and it is going to apply to all of us across the board. Because in some way, we're going to discover we are small. But we can be wise. So, four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies, or rock badgers, are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. Now, you may not be falling on your knees after I read those scripture passages, cut to the heart, saying, yes, I need to walk in this, because most of you are thinking, just like the Corinthians did, Neat little verse about oxen treading out the corn, but what does that have to do with us? And that's the, maybe the way you're thinking. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks, starting today, we're going to be looking at one of these animals, and we're going to say, ask this question, so what? What does this mean for me today? So that's what we're going to do. Ecclesiastes 10.10 says this. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed but skill will bring success. Now, that's how the NIV reads it. That word that the NIV translates skill is translated differently in other versions. Do you know why? Because the Hebrew word for that is a very common word in the book of Proverbs. It is the word wisdom. Wisdom. Now, the truth is, when you have a dull axe, there is a way that you can chop this tree down or split the log without having to use such excessive force. Because most of us think, well, if, if the edge of the axe is dull, I'm going to have to hit it harder. 
Well, not necessarily if you know how to chop wood, if you know how to chop a tree down, okay? There's a method. There is, I could, we could call it skill, but it is experience. I've done this before. I know how to do it. The Bible calls that wisdom. And so even though the axe is dull with wisdom, you can chop that tree down. With wisdom, you can split that log. Let me put it this way. We're not all the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? I know I'm not, but it doesn't matter because though we may be small, if we are wise, we can do great things. And it is only because, not because we are great, because we serve a great God, and it is from him that we're going to receive this wisdom. From reading his word, studying it, and applying it, that's how we're going to walk this out with wisdom. So you can feel today like that dull axe, not the sharpest tool in the shed. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've done something and I've I can't believe I did that. How stupid. I try not to say that, but that's how I feel. Anyway, I'm just being real with you. Don't you feel that way? So how stupid was I? That's okay. Your axe might be dull this morning. Walk in wisdom. So that's what we're going to try and do over the next four weeks. We're going to try and walk in wisdom. There are five things about ants that I want us to observe, and I'm, I'm only going to spend time really on two or so of them because the others are more obvious, but they lead to the next point, okay? Five things very quickly. Number one, we all know that they are small, okay? With the weight of your foot, they're history. This is true, okay? They are small, and the truth is, we too can feel very small, not very gifted or skilled, not very smart, not a leader. I mean, if you're not a leader, wow, then who are you? We're not outgoing. We're an introvert. How can I impact those around me? How can I do great things or whatever you feel God's called you to if you're an introvert, if you're painfully shy? I'm not a very good speaker. I'm not really relationally adept. When you step into new situations that involve people, you feel like you are out of your comfort zone completely. You freeze. Okay, I've been listening to Pastor Mike lately about impacting others, and I have no clue what to say right now. You can feel small. You're not old enough. You're just so young. You know, Moses, in the book of Exodus, I'm going to read just a few verses there, but Moses felt the very same way, except Moses was not, Peter, you're 16, hello, you're what, 19? 20, 21, wow, I'm sorry, I need to put some more age on you. We can, Moses, he didn't feel young. At the burning bush, at this incident, Moses was 80 years old. 80. Now, at one time, he was a prince in Egypt, not the crown prince. That means he was the next guy to step on the, to, to be seated on the throne. He, that was not him. He was not the crown prince, but he was a prince. And he thought he was all that in a bag of chips, and he realized one day that he wasn't. He thought he had a plan, and that plan 
was a colossal failure. He had a good heart. He wanted to be able to redeem or help or save his people from Egyptian bondage. But he had his plan, and God looked at him when he was 40 years, age, 40 years of age and says, Moses, kind of like your heart here. I need to change a lot of it, but I tell you what, we're going to do it my way. Moses ran for his life after he killed the Egyptian, if you remember, and he buried him in the sand and was discovered. His plan wasn't going to work. Forty years later, God appears to him and says, Hey, Moses, you are going to be delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now, if he were 40, he would have said, Oh, yeah, I'm the man for that job. But you know what he said now? This is what he said. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? A whole chapter later, this incident, this event, encompasses a chapter and a half. Two chapters, really. And Moses, after a chapter... God is trying to convince him and demonstrate to him, Moses, but this is not all about you, okay? This is not all about how wise you are or how skilled you are. This is going to be about bringing glory to me because this is my idea, not yours. We're going to do it my way, not yours. And, And I'm paraphrasing, of course. And again, Moses says this to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent. Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Every time he opened his mouth, it was as, it was as if he had just taken a bite out of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You ever have the peanut butter stick to the roof of your mouth and then the rest of the sandwich, sandwich sticks with it and you're talking like talking. You can't do it. Okay, and, and that's how he felt like his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. Maybe he, there was a stuttering issue. We don't really know, but he was not good in public, at least to some degree. And there was certainly a lack of confidence right now. Small, felt insignificant. You know, God, if you had talked to me about 40 years ago, I'd be your man. But I'm a broken man now. 40 years. I'm just a shepherd. Church, you realize that Egyptians hated shepherds? That was like the lowest job that you could have. And that's what Moses did. He was the janitor that regularly cleaned out the toilets, so to speak. That was Moses. Who am I? I'm sorry, you got the wrong man for the job. I can't even talk. I'm not eloquent. And I'm sure that he had heard some eloquent speakers and he was comparing himself to them. Ever done that? Compared yourself to someone else? Apparently drew the short end of the stick at birth on that one. Wow. You feel so inadequate. Can I just tell you that if that's the way you feel, You are the exact person for what God's calling you to. The exact person. Because God does not need showboats. He does not need men or women who love a stage. It's fine to stand on a stage. Daniel stood on the stage. But, and I've spoken to you about this, 
Daniel preferred to call it or, or refer to it as a platform, an ability, an opportunity to minister to the king. That's all it was for him. His other, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they ministered to different people. That was their platform. What platform is God giving you? What is that looking? Because it's not a stage, because it's not about you. It wasn't about Moses. And Mo, that's how Moses was feeling. It's about me, and I can't do it. I'm inadequate. I'm small. Oh, but Moses, see, it's not about you. Small but wise. And I'm going to just tell you this. When you feel so small, and you feel like your back is pressed up against the wall, and you're kind of thinking, eh, there's no way out of this. I can't do this. You are exactly where God wants you. Exactly. Because that's where God wants his people. He's not wanting them to say, hey, listen to what I have to say, right? No, this is, whenever prophets spoke, it was, this is the word of the Lord. You see? So, small but wise. Moses eventually led Israel out of Egypt. God heard his complaints God's heart was tuned in. I hear what you're saying, Moses. I'm not liking it, but here's what I'm going to do for you right now. Just because I, I need to give you something right now. I'm going to give you your brother Aaron, and Aaron will be your mouthpiece. Aaron will be to Pharaoh like a prophet, and you will be like a god to him. God speaking through the prophet. Moses speaking through Aaron. Now, eventually, Moses realized, you know what? God really is in this. And when God is in this, he can do anything. Because God started doing miracles. And so eventually, it wasn't Aaron that spoke, it was Moses. Moses felt small, but Moses made a choice to walk in wisdom. Small. Yes. Wise. Yes. Number two, ants apparently are referred to in this passage collectively. It's not in the singular, it's in the plural. Ants do these things. You actually find, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> you actually find the first three of these creatures in the plural. Ants. I'm going to call them rock badgers rather than conies. Conies tends to refer more to rabbits, and this is not a rabbit. Um, so a rock badger, and we're going to, we're going to see how that applies. And then number three, locusts, that's in the plural, but the lizard is in the singular. So the ants. Yes, and some of you are very glad that God puts lizards in the singular. We have had those creatures in our house. Lord, help us when that happens. My wife wants to move out, live in a hotel until that lizard is caught and cast out in Jesus' name. It is like a demon in our home. Oh, my. Yep, so we, ha we have managed. So we'll talk about lizards in a few weeks, but we'll talk about them in the plural. Excuse me, the singular. 
Today, we're going to talk about ants, but in the plural. They're collective, and together, they do great things. You know, it's one thing for an ant to collect. Have you ever seen ants just carry these little teeny tiny pieces of food? So tiny, but there's a whole row of them, and there's hundreds if not thousands of them feeding out of your kitchen. Oh, oh my goodness. What's the exterminator's number, Mike? Right? He needs to come right now. Uh, I just, there we go, we're done. The truth is, though, that the that these ants, though they carry such small parts, collectively, hundreds, thousands of them, okay, they can, they can empty your refrigerator, they can empty your pantry, they, they can do a lot of stuff, right? So in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we see a picture of the church, not just the apostles, not just Peter preaching on Pentecost, but now it's the entire group. They... Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. There was somehow, some way in which these people, the the first century church, just church was one year old, less than a a year old, and, and, and God was doing something in them so that the way they lived, the way they spoke, the rest of the Jews looked on. The, the regular people, not necessarily the religious leaders. That is something that takes place, but that's in chapter 6. Here we're in chapter 2. The people found favor. The Christians found favor with, the, with their fellow Jews who did not believe in Jesus. How did they do that? They lived and spoke in a way that we're going to come to that impacted them. Number three, so the ants were collective. The people here, it wasn't just a few, it was the church living this way collectively. Number three, these ants apparently understand the present need. So they're gathering food. They they go about their day-to-day business because there is a need that they have, and they know this innately. And so they seek to meet that need. But as they're meeting the need, they also understand, number four, of a future need. Their eyes aren't just on the present, but their eyes are on the future. What did, Meredith, what did you say at the very beginning of worship? That many times we will live in the now, but not yet. And, and Jesus wants us to have a view to the not yet. Now, she was referring to heaven, and I am referring to, yes, heaven, but even before that in our own life, just down the road. The ants, for them, it's just six to eight months, nine months. They're packing their lunch, if you will, for months down the road. They're preparing. They have their eye on the present need, but they have the eye their eye on a future need. Number five, they do something in the present that sufficiently meets the present need and will meet the future need. They invest. Write that word down. They invest. That's what these ants are doing because they understand a present need, but they realize there's going to be a future need, so they meet the present need but invest in the future need. How can we then do this? Small but wise, how can we invest 
in our future and in our present as well. Now, from here, I could launch into talking about financial investments, saving. Don't just work for your present needs, but always remember to save. And actually, the author of, of some of these Proverbs writes about them earlier, several chapters earlier, about how ants are industrious and they work and they save up for the winter time. So we could talk about finances, but I'm going to talk about a different type of investment this morning. Because this isn't a financial seminar, and I'm not turning it into one. I am wanting you, as we re look at the early church, and I want us to see how did they invest in the future. We could talk about investing in the youth, but I am just going to talk about investing in people. Because here's what I know. When you invest in people and their lives change, they then impact so many others, including their children. And not only are their lives changed, but other lives are changed as well. This is what investment means. You take a seed of corn and you plant it, and it produces an entire stalk with hundreds, if not thousands, of other kernels of corn. This is investment. How do we do this? Can I bring something to your attention? And it's something that I brought to the attention of the men last night. Matthew 13, 33. I'm not going to share all that I shared last night, which honestly wasn't too much, I don't think. It was enough. But it says this. Jesus is telling them a parable. And I'm only going to draw a principle from this to show something. I'm not going to dig into it as much as we did last night. So here's what he says. He told them still another parable. Here's what he said. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. In the very end, it is, is very short. It says, until it leavened the whole. Leaven affects by feeding on, or if, if that's the right way of, of saying it, the yeast feeding on the flour, the sugar, whatever, and it produces carbon dioxide. And it causes the entire dough to rise. Now, if you don't mix the yeast in properly, it's, it's not going to affect the entire dough. But Jesus is very clear here, isn't he? The woman mixes this leaven into the entire batch of dough. The leaven is the kingdom of God. The leaven then includes the proclaiming of the gospel, the authority of Jesus Christ that he has in rescuing the lost. This is the kingdom of God. This truth that transforms us, that now by the spirit of God in us, empowers us to be small but wise and impact those around us. So the leaven then is the kingdom of God. It's not just the gospel, but it's what the gospel does in us and transforms us in our hearts. That is where the kingdom of God is, okay? So the kingdom of God is then mixed throughout the batch of dough. And by the other parables, we realize that it is referring not just to 
Jerusalem or Judea, it's actually referring to the whole world. And that the woman that appears to be representative of Jesus himself mixing in this yeast, the yeast is mixed thoroughly. Now listen to this. The yeast affects every aspect and part of that batch of dough. Not just a little bit here and there. Can I tell you this? That if you think you've mixed yeast into your dough and you see only portions of it rising and the rest does not, you didn't mix it in. And Jesus says, no, that's what's going to happen. It's going to mix in all of it and therefore all of the batch of dough will be affected. So here's my point. We are this yeast, the kingdom of God in us. So we are this yeast and he is filtering us or, or, or rather spreading us and spreading the gospel throughout this world. And it's very prophetic and very profound that the kingdom of God in you will eventually affect and impact the entire world. So do, do you see this? So here's where I'm going to go with this because I can't spend too long on this, but I need us to realize that though you are small, God has especially given you wisdom. And, and I can't tell you exactly what all of that wisdom should look like because the Spirit of God is going to need to speak to every single one of your hearts in every single one of your situations to lead you to know how am I to be like yeast in this moment today and impact and affect others. Because that's the point of this parable. How do you, as some of that yeast, affect the dough around you, if you will? If you were to go into a brick-and-mortar bookstore today, is Books a Million even around these days? Barnes & Noble, Barnes & Noble. They generally have a shelf, a, a, a section devoted to the top 10 best-selling books. And generally, a large percentage of those books are self-help books. So what does that tell you about our culture? What that tells us about our culture is that we are a people who want to constantly improve ourselves. That is inbred in our culture, in our day. I did a little bit of research on this. I wanted to know what genres of books sell the most. The number one answer to that question, the number one genre selling 1.4, I think it was 1.4, here we go, 1.41, uh, no, 1.44 billion books a year was romance. I'm not going to suggest that that is a self-help book by any means. But romance was number one. N number two, and this is clearly reflected, by the way, in Hollywood. Number two is crime and mystery at 728 million. Number three was religious and slash inspirational. And by inspirational, it could be very irreligious, but it inspires you. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be the best you that you can be. How do I do that? Well, go to SSC, apparently, because that's their motto. Be a better you. 
helping you be a better, whatever it says, I can't remember exactly. So no offense to SSC, but they are simply in tune with the, with the voice in our day, in our culture. We want to be a better me. Number four was science fiction and fantasy at 590 million and horror at 79 million. Now I checked another uh, website and, and here's what I found. Many of them will agree with this, but it just depends, I guess, in how you count the books and, and what genre you place some of these books. But they placed uh, children's books, especially humorous children's books, at number four and science fiction at number five. Regardless, um, I believe we live in a generation, because I'm asking, answering this question, how do I, as yeast, impact those around me, understand that our world is in serious need? And the gospel is the answer to that need. But the question is, does the world, does my culture in America, and I would consider America a post Christian nation, not that it ever was truly a Christian nation, but it was rooted, its moorings were in the Bible and not the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or some other religious book or what Confucius had to say. It's what they believed God had to say in the Bible. That is reflected in our laws, church. In, in England's common law, we adopted so much of that. The Bible was quoted, if you were to look at the in the Library of Congress, in the, when the first Congress met and how they, all the different things they talked to about what the Constitution should look like, how we should, you know, the various laws, the Bible was quoted twice as many times as any other book. And our laws reflect that. So we were a Christian nation, not that even the majority were saved, but we are rooted in Christian values. We are a post-Christian nation now, meaning that we are wanting generally the majority, wanting to throw those moorings off or cut or, or sever ourselves from our Christian roots, and we are wanting to define morality. We are even wanting to define who this God is like because my definition of love excludes this concept of hell, they say, and so we're getting rid of hell. Whatever I read in the Bible that I don't like and I disagree with, I get rid of, and I will create my own God. Anybody want to join me? And so that's what these self-help books are trying to do. They're trying to create something and sometimes God is a part of it, something that will help you be a better you. They, we all have needs. The Bible says that that need is rooted, and the cause of this need is sin in our life. But the world doesn't see, that, see it that way. No, you're basically good. So help me, I'm going to help you become uh, gooder, whatever. Uh, I'm going to give you this self-help book and it's just going to transform. You're going to be a better you. Wow, really? I want to be happier. So I'm going to read this book. You know, my marriage is falling apart. I'm going to read this book. And they're going to tell me how to have a better marriage and how to put my spouse in their place, apparently. and, And so everybody is trying to scream out 
buy my book. I'm the next guru in marriage or philosophy or how to become a better you in some way. And so these self-help books, and, and, and I'm really emphasizing this church, you've noticed, because this is where we're at as a culture. We want to become better. We want our pain to be less. We want to rise up in the business world. We want to have the answers because apparently Christianity had its day and it didn't work, right? It's like the batter who is trying to choose what bat to use. And he looks out and he says, you know what? I think that the reason why all of my teammates are striking out is because they're using the wrong bat. And so I'm going to choose a completely different bat. I'm going to choose, well, let's see, one that I can swing quickly. I'll choose a hollow plastic bat. That's the answer. I'm going to write a book about it, in fact. And so they step up to the plate. They believe that the bat is the problem. And if you're following my analogy, that bat is Christianity. We're going to remake it. I'll choose a hollow plastic bat. Now, can I just tell you that if you're playing wiffle ball, great choice. Hollow plastic bat, it's, you know, it doesn't need to be super strong, and it can send that wiffle hollow plastic ball out of the court. And I used to play in a church courtyard, so that's why I'm saying out of the courtyard. So if you hit that ball over the wall, you got a home run. And, <laughs> and so, But using a hollow plastic bat was great for wiffle ball. But church, we ain't playing wiffle ball. That's not what life is about. And if you think that you can hit a home run with a hollow plastic ball in the major leagues, you've, you're seriously deluded. But some of these self-help, self-help books, yep, here's the answer. You need a hollow plastic bat. And if you get one of those, and I'm going to tell you, nope, it's not working. Because you don't understand the problem. The problem isn't the bat. The problem is that you don't know how to swing the bat. The problem is that you have not been in the batter's cage long enough. The problem may be your coach and all these self-help books you're reading. The problem is something other than the bat. But in America, we say get rid of the bat because apparently everybody is striking out and we need to get a new bat. And so we're throwing off Christianity. We're redefining Christianity and yet still calling it Christianity, and it's nothing close. So how then, in that situation, do we as yeast affect and as leaven, leaven the lump, the whole batch? You see, people, they want to be so blessed that they have no problems. But see, the real truth is that God says, I'm sorry, but you live in a broken world. Not that you should give up hope, but you're not going to be able to fix all of those problems. So don't make your happiness dependent upon whether you go through problems or not. They're going to come. Let me show you how to swing the bat. Let me show you 
how you can go through life's struggles, tragedies even, in a way that you can experience deep abiding joy. The world wants happiness at any cost, but their idea is let's get rid of the problems and that's not going to happen. God's way is different. God's way is if you trust me, if you truly rely on me, here we go, James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That you can, here's God's promise, you can actually go through struggles and trials and even tragedy with pure joy. Wow. I wonder what that would look like. That's what the world's asking. Okay, I'm looking for happiness, I'm looking for joy. And they see a Christian going through something that is so hard. And it's not that they're not hurting, because they're real. And the world understands this, but the world looks on and says, my goodness, how do they get through that with such joy? See, that's you. That is you learning to swing the bat. That is you being yeast and impacting the whole batch of dough. That is you being yeast and shining Christ and making, Titus 2, making the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ attractive. That's what the world wants to see. They're tired of the words. They want to see it. They want to see Jesus in skin. They want to see someone living out this Christian life that they can find in the Bible, and it's real, it's genuine. It's where the rubber meets the road. They want to see a Christian going through pain, but coming out with such joy, infectious joy. People, they're just thinking, okay, maybe I can live my life and avoid all of the hurt, relational hurt. But can I just tell you that that is a great ideal to have. But we're never going to get there until heaven. And the reason is because in this fallen world, there's a lot of fallen people like you and me that have been affected and impacted by sin. And though Jesus has rescued me from that, even the power of sin, my flesh still can rule me at times. And I can sin and I can speak and I can do things that hurt people. And we're never going to get away from that. We can become better, great, but we're still going to be hurt. We will still get hurt. The question is not, how do I just avoid all of this hurt? Do I just run away? Do I just, I know what I'll do, I'll move to Germany. I know what I'll do, I'll move to China. Good luck with that one. I know what I'll do, and we want to just run from the problems. That's not the answer. You see, the answer... The answer is learning how, when we are hurt, to forgive. And whether the world recognizes that entirely or not, there is something inside of them that sees someone when they go through hurts and they have the ability to forgive as beautiful. Whether you like it or not, you are on a stage before the world. 
No one likes to be scrutinized. No one likes to be observed. But the world is observing you, Christian, and they want to see what do you have. And you are a book that's read by all men, and it's not a self-help book. It's a self-crucifying book. That's what it's really about. It's how can Mike Curtis get out of the way so that Jesus can live through him so that when whatever I do and say and think and speak that, that somehow Jesus is coming out and his will is being lived out and spoken through me and not Mike Curtis's because Mike Curtis has died and Jesus lives in him. See, whether the world wants that answer or not, that is the answer. And we are now called to live that out. But in the end, because the image of God, though broken, is still in us, the world will still recognize the power of a transformed life. They will recognize joy in the midst of heartache. They will recognize the ability to forgive when you are hurt. And that will speak to them and open their heart. The world might want to be rich, but the truth is, even when the wealthy are asked, so how much money does someone need to be content? Their answer is apparently a little bit more. But that, the, the truth is, instead of running after money, because money is not the answer to our ills, because the problem is not our lack of money, the problem is sin. Okay, and, and, and the problem is that Mike Curtis sometimes does not fully rely on God, but if he can, Mike Curtis has seen God do a lot of miracles financially, a lot of them. Oh my goodness, a lot of them. The world might say that the problem is, I just need to get rich. But the Bible says, no. What the world needs to see in you is contentment. People can look around and say, you know what? I like the McDonald's concept of life, the drive-through. You know, get my order to me in 60 seconds or less. Not that McDonald's does that anymore. I think Chick-fil-A's been ruling and reigning in that realm, the drive-through, for quite some time. All right? Um, so maybe I'll change it to a Chick-fil-A philosophy, right? <laughs> but that might hurt some people, so I won't. The truth is we can have this mentality that says, why should I sacrifice? Why should I give, give, give? Why should I serve? And, and it just seems like when I do that, there's only bad attitudes on the other end. Man, I can't tell you how much I've served my wife this week, and she just finds something else to complain about. Okay, I could have reversed that. I could have said, you know, the wife says, right? And the husband just finds something else to complain about. But the truth is, that is what God has called us to, a life of sacrifice and service. A life that is poured out, as Paul says, like a drink offering coming from your service and faith. That's, that's what my life is all about. My life is not about how much money I can save up. My life is not about how many friends I can make. Though I would say that is important for what I'm trying to say here today. The world might say that this is the answer, and Jesus is saying, you know what? No, the answer is for you, Mike Curtis, to die, and for me to live through you 
a poured out, self-sacrificing life of servanthood to others. And Jesus was our example. So how wealthy was Jesus, by the way? He lived on donations his entire ministry. He did not go back to carpentry or masonry, whichever it was. He was not wealthy, at least when we speak of money. No, really what the answer that the world needs to see in Christians is a people who delight, delight in sacrifice and are patient and loving and serving. That is what the world needs to see. So we are painting a picture for the world of Jesus in me, Mike Curtis crucified, Jesus living in me. This is the picture that the world needs. That picture will open up conversations to be able to talk about Jesus. Remember the woman at the well, John 4. She didn't run to her city, her town, and then start spouting off the four spiritual laws. They eventually recognized Jesus as the Savior of the world. And it tells us that in the very last verse of John chapter 4. But she wasn't the one who was able to communicate that. She just simply said, oh my goodness, come and see. A man who told me everything about my life. And she was a sinful woman. Can you imagine that memoir? Oh my goodness. The truth, though, is that she pointed people to Jesus. And that's what we're doing. We're making the gospel attractive. We're making the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ attractive again. Because we live in a day in which Christians have truly, across our nation, blown it. And, and excuse me, I'm going to go here. But in the face of racism, instead of really addressing racism, many people, even conservative Christians, are wanting to say, well, there is no racism. Well, that is not true at all. Now, you might believe that there's no systemic racism, Okay, and I've talked with black Christian policemen, one in particular that became a pastor, and he said, Mike, I'm sorry, I disagree with that charge that, that there is systemic racism in the police force, but can I tell you there is racism? And revamping the entire police force or getting rid of it is not the answer, but there does need to be reform. The problem, though, is that we have not been serious about this reform. So we are getting tremendous backlash from people who are saying, defund the police. Well, defunding the police isn't the answer, okay? Now, I do believe that if we listen to some of those things they suggest, it's not all just a bunch of garbage, but we need to go somewhere, and we need to act on this. Christians have because of how we have reacted to the problems of our world, we have not represented Christ very well all the time. I'm going to save that for another time, and I want to conclude with this. I, I just want to put a little bit of flesh on this uh, construct that I'm giving us as far as how we can impact those around us by how we live, and yes, the time is going to come when we will speak words. 
and that you might be able to share your testimony. In this past Wednesday, uh, my group just fleshed out their own personal testimony and they shared it within their little group of three. Um, Juliana is actually going through the aspects of the gospel. I'm kind of getting this feeling that God is wanting us to really grab a hold of the gospel and live it out and speak it out. But I realize that not everybody is ready to just share the four spiritual laws or whatever or, or outline of the gospel that you know. And, and the six scripture passages that you have memorized to share with someone to lead them to Christ. And not everybody is there, but here's where you are. Just like the woman at the well. Come and see a man. Let me, let me point you to Jesus. And, and he has the answer. I witnessed it. And he changed my life. If I were to walk into Parks Lincoln of Longwood, because last night I asked the guys, what are we going to do differently, guys? In view of what we just looked at, in being East, what are we going to do differently this coming week? How is your life going to change at least just a little bit? And, and, and we started with our love for people. And if we don't love people enough, we are not going to take the time for people. We're just not. Well, I'm not going to re-preach that. What I am going to just, I'm just going to walk you through. When I, if, if I'm going to go to Parks Lincoln of Longwood, something the Lord has just shown me. And that is, when I go, there's, there's two buildings. And in the used car building, when I go in there, it's generally a number of guys. It's very low key. It's not busy. Some may have customers, some not. But can I walk through there slowly? Rather than in being in a hurry to grab another key to work on a car. And sometimes that's just a fact and I can't get around it because rain is coming at one and I have to have this bumper sprayed before then. And I don't have time. But maybe if it's raining, maybe sometime later, maybe I can take five or ten minutes and I can just sit down and, and I can just say, hey, John, so how, how was your weekend? And maybe John would say, my weekend was great. Did a lot of really cool things. And, um, and, I'm, and, and I would probably pause and I said, but John, you, you seem a little bit hesitant. What, was it not a good weekend? No, no, it, it was good. Then what is it that you're wrestling with? Well, I'm new to the dealership here, and the last two jobs that I had didn't pay real well, and I'm really hoping this is going to work out because I'm going to school, and if I don't make enough money, I'm not going to be able to finish my degree, and I'm only halfway through. John just revealed to me a need. John could go to Barnes & Noble and hopefully, under the top 10 bestsellers, find something about finances and how he could accelerate those and, and do better and earn more money. Or I could share with him something at this point because John just revealed a need to me. Wow, John is afraid that this job isn't going to work out. John is afraid that he may not have enough money. Well, guess what? I have been there probably 30 times more than John has. Because I'm 60 years old and he's only 22. Okay. Maybe right now I can share a story with him. Maybe right now it would be good to say, wow, John, you know what? I have been in your shoes before and I hate it myself. I don't like it. But, but can I share something with you? Since I was 14, 
I made a choice to follow Jesus. And I found that the Bible has so much wisdom. Here's what I found. And I'm just going to tell you a story right now. And I could tell him about the time in which my business was doing really poorly. Um, not, not real poorly, but I wasn't making enough to support my family. And I was trying to get through seminary. And I was only about halfway or two-thirds of the way through. And I just said, okay, God. And I'm wrestling with God. And I'm talking to John Henry. And I say, you know what, John? I really wrestle with God. I really believe that there is a God in heaven. And he hears my prayers. And I was talking to him one day. And I said, God, I'm not making enough money with my business. So here's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to need to set seminary aside right now, my graduate studies. And I'm just going to have to focus entirely on my business and not school. And John, can I just tell you what happened next? And this doesn't happen to me a lot. But God spoke to my heart. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's ever happened to you, but he spoke to my heart that day. And he said, Mike, can you give me two weeks? That's all he said. And I was just so impacted by that. Whoa. I decided not to argue with God, and I said, okay, God, I'll give you two weeks. I can do that. And so I'm still talking with John, and I said, you know what, John? And this is hypothetical, but I said, you know what, John? Can I tell you what happened two weeks later? John is going to be on the edge of his seat. Oh, my goodness. you got to tell me. Wow, John, sorry. i got to go. No, 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 you're not going. You're going to tell me what happened. Just like Jesus at the well, Jesus asked a question about living water. So tell me more about this living water. So I have a little testimony that I want to share with John about how God provided. And I'm going to tell John that two weeks later, Actually, it was 13 and a half days later. Because it was Sunday morning, and the guy came to me Saturday afternoon. And he's the manager of the apartment complex that we live in. And he says to me, so Mike, I see you've started your own business. We have actually had discussions about the long grass here. And we're having a really rough time with our private company. We've had two that we've had to fire because they're non-Christian companies, and we some of those guys have really creeped out the ladies. And so we just... <sighs> yeah, so we're looking for a replacement. Would you be interested? And I'm cutting lawns, that's my business. So I thought for about half a second and said, yeah. And I then proceeded to say to myself, This is a huge account. I'm used to cutting residential lawns, and this is a huge apartment complex. God, I have no idea. So all I did, and I'm talking to John. John, here's what I did. I just started walking around the place, taking notes, and, and just saying, God, I don't know how to do this. I'm doing the best I can. Surely they're going to look at the price, and they're just going to say, Mike, are you crazy? Seriously? That much? it's big. So I'm walking, I'm just, okay. Uh, Lord, I, I've got to choose a number here. How much am I going to charge? Because he wanted a per cut basis. And I chose a number as best as I could. And I said, this is how much I would charge you. And it was a lot of money. And the guy looked at it and he said, wow, Mike, that's the exact same amount of money that the other two companies were charging. And can, and can I just tell you, 
my goodness, if there is a God in heaven, he sure showed it to me that day. I had no clue. I could have chosen a number. But as I pressed into God, John, this is what God, okay, God, is this what you want me to do? And I felt like I was supposed to, and I gave it to him. And he said, yeah, Mike, when can you start? You see, John, this is how God works. When you can really trust him with your life and with everything, that's what he's wanting from you. And so, John, I have a lot more I could, I'd love to share with you someday. But I just want you to know today that I've been in your shoes, and it is always scary. And I'm 60 years old, and it's still scary. But see, I serve a God that is so much bigger than that problem. And one day I'd love to be able to tell you about it. And I'll leave it at that. John, i got to go. I was just trying to be a little bit of yeast in that moment to somehow say something that might be able to speak to his heart. And I've got a couple of those testimonies. But see, I'm already 60 years old. I didn't have that testimony until I was, I don't know, 28, I guess, years old. And John's only 25. But wow, John, you've got so much time. I want to speak to your heart, Christian. You have so much more time if Jesus tarries. God wants to build testimonies in your life if you'll but trust him. He wants to use those testimonies like yeast kneaded into the dough of this world. So can you shine Jesus? This Monday morning when you wake up, can you shine Jesus to your neighbor, to your boss? Grab somebody and just shine Jesus to them. Like the woman at the well, come see a man. Mm. Point people to Jesus. Okay? You can be small, but you can be so very wise. And collectively as a church, this world can be one. Amen. Can you stand with me? Father, our world is struggling so much. Our world is lost. Some of us have stumbled across the truth about Jesus and you've changed us. And God, we're just asking you this morning, show us how we can bring this hope and this truth and be yeast to the rest of the world. Show me how to do that in my neighborhood, in the place that I work, at my school. We just want to be yeast, God. We want to impact people. Though we are small, make us wise. Though our axe is dull, give us wisdom to chop this tree down and to split this log. Just give us wisdom, God. Because your word says that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. Don't doubt, but ask and he'll give it to us. So God, we're asking right now, when we step foot into our business, wherever we're at, Zumba, wherever we're at, Monday morning. Give me wisdom and let me shine Jesus. Please, God, in Jesus' name I pray.